Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Zach Sundin, executive producer of the Darwinian Diva podcast. And on today's episode, we're featuring a Zoom interview between the Diva and Dr. Martha Escobar from Oakland University. We really hope you enjoy this one. We think this one's a great episode. And if you have any questions or comments about this or any other episodes, please contact us from our email or social media pages. Here is the Diva. Okay, greetings and welcome to the Darwinian Diva podcast. I am your host, Viviana Week Shackleford, evolutionary psychologist and science advocate. I am so excited today because we have with us Dr. Martha Escobar, who is an expert in cognition and behavior, and she is also a professor at Oakland University here in Rochester, Michigan. So just to give you a quick background on who uh, Dr. Martha Escobar is, she received her bachelor's in psychology from Deusto University in Spain, and she also received her master's and PhD in cognitive and behavioral sciences from Binghamton University in New York. She was a faculty member at Auburn University from 2002 to 2015 and has been at Oakland University since 2015. Yay! She regularly teaches introductory psychology, psychology of learning, animal behavior, and neuroanatomy, brain, and behavior. Dr. Escobar is heavily involved in research, and some of her research primarily focuses on common basic processes that determine what we learn and what we remember, as well as how this learning and memory takes place. And for these reasons, uh, Dr. Escobar and her lab use a variety of species to investigate these phenomena, ranging from invertebrates to humans, and they also use a variety of techniques to understand these phenomena that include pharmaceuticals, complex behavioral training, and eye-tracking technology. Another um, primary focus of uh, Dr. Escobar's lab is student training, where she is actively involved in investigating factors uh, that favor or hinder progress in STEM careers, especially in at-risk and underrepresented populations. So welcome, Dr. Escobar. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Viviana. Okay, so um, I thought before we get into your research and all that fun stuff, I was kind of curious to know as you are very, uh, you know, active in, you know, as an academic and teaching and conducting research involved with undergraduates and graduate students, how has, uh, you know, this sort of quarantine or, you know, social distancing and working remotely, how has it impacted you? And, you know, I know that this situation has impacted everyone in you know, various levels, and um, just curious what, what you're doing to, uh, to help yourself you know, maintain, maintain your, your foot in, in, in academics. Well, I, I think it has been difficult for everybody. The main thing is we have these blurred lines now, right? So work and life have become kind of one. It's very difficult to compartmentalize. Right. So um, I think everybody's going through adjustments. Um, I personally, since I do so much remote work, I thought the transition was going to be incredibly easy. Um, you know, this is what I do because a lot of my research takes place on the other side of the country, and I'm still very linked to the southeastern United States. Uh, we have colleagues in Europe that are participating in our research, and the transition was supposed to be easy, but when everybody has to do it at the same time, and we're not ready for it to happen so abruptly, um, I think it has really um, impacted everybody in interesting ways. I think it's opened a lot of um, different venues and a lot of different opportunities that we didn't have before. Right. Um, so we've been able to engage um, the participants in some of our programs in 
new ways. Um, we've been able to um, pilot learning communities and networking communities and um, virtual get-togethers. And <laughs> those have been, um, you know, ranging in success from very successful to we don't know what we're doing. Um, but, you know, all of that is happening at the same time. Um, you know, of course, for those of us who do a lot of presential research or who do animal research, um, the stay-at-home orders have been um, something that has impacted us um, quite drastically. So this is a time to be creative. This is the time to meet with your students and figure out what we can do right now to prepare for when things come back to normal, because we know that things will eventually come back to normal um, and what we can do in the meanwhile. So I think it's been a lot of adjustment for everybody, regardless of how prepared they thought they would be <laughs> to transition to a situation in which um, getting together physically is not possible. Yeah, the um, yeah. so it's sort of forced, I think, a lot of people who aren't necessarily creative, you, you have to be creative. <laughs> In order to get your, your things done. And uh, one of the things you mentioned is, you know, the strategies for kind of coping today and the things that we, you know, that need to be done today, you know, now. And then, but at the same time, we have to think ahead, right? So it makes it mm -hmm. even more difficult, um, you know, to sort of organize strategies. <laughs> Do you have any strategies that you have found so far in you know, that have been successful or, or definitely don't work? <laughs> Yeah, so I think these, um, so I, I work a lot with young faculty and the development of young faculty, and I think that for most of them, the hardest thing has been to keep a schedule, because um, we are all very limited in when we work and how we work and how do we pace our work. And with kids at home and you don't have classes, um, you know, people kind of relax these schedules and they are kind of engulfing your entire life. And it makes it very stressful and very difficult. You don't really know when things are supposed to happen. Um, I'm a big calendar person. All my students will tell you I have them create calendars and we share calendars and everything is blocked out. Um, you know, I, I schedule everything and keeping a, a semblance of a schedule I think it's something that can help people right now um, to kind of stay on track and to not lose their minds. Um, because we have, you know, I keep on getting all these requests for meetings. And I'm like, yeah, that's lunchtime. I'm not going to meet with you at lunchtime. They're like, oh, you know, I'm just having lunch whenever I feel hungry. I'm like, no, 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 stop in the middle of the day for a few minutes and give yourself the semblance that things are um, still kind of in a sense normal of course they're not normal right. and of course you know your timing is going to be all over the place but um i think that acknowledging the fact that you need to have some you know weekends should still be something special you know we still do brunch on sundays even if it is at home and even if we're eating cereal it does not matter um you know still having some regularity i think um helps us um and the other thing is that you said we we are all in panic mode and and in crisis mode, right? So people switch to classes um, from one day to the next, everything moved online and our students were not prepared to be taking online classes and our faculty were not prepared to teach online classes. And we need to acknowledge that right now we're in panic mode, but we also need to acknowledge that we don't know what the next couple of semesters are gonna be like. So having some plans to prepare for what's happening right now and having some 
um, strategies for how you're going to handle things um, in the midterm and the long term, I think kind of give you a little peace of mind that you know what you're doing and that you can pace things and you can actually move through. Um, I think taking the feedback from students, most students were panicking uh, during the spring and winter semesters. Um, they didn't know what was going to happen. And at the end, they made it through. And um, just clinging to those emails of thank you so much for meeting with me when I had no idea what was going on. And thank you for calling me back and walking me through the learning management system. Just cling to that because that kind of tells you that you are doing something that is good and that you have managed. And you know, pat yourself in the back, you made it through. Um, I think that's important. Yeah, I feel like that's really important as well. And and it kind of communicates to the students that you're also, you're going along, you know, with these troubles and these changes yourself, right? So, you know, you're all part of, we're all part of the same community in that regard, right? Yeah. And I think it's something that um, someone told me the other day, this is a great opportunity to have yourself and your kids write what was going on during the pandemic. Because a few years down the road, you're going to realize just how community forming this experience can be. Um, you know, we're living through something that people have not lived through uh, in our previous generation. I mean, we're all going through this together and we're going through this with means that we didn't know we have and we're discovering things that we didn't know we could discover. And um, I think it's a great time to stop and talk and acknowledge and recognize um, how community bonding um, this event can be. And, um, you know, I see that with my students and how they have stepped up to help each other. And, um, you know, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to get it. You know, it's okay. I can figure it out. Or, um, you know, they need off hours to explain to each other how to manage uh, certain things online. And, you know, those are positives. I think we're also focused on how terrible this is that, yeah. you know, sometimes it's nice to take a step back and just look at the great things that, that we've been able to do um, also. Absolutely. Very good. So I guess in, in sum, if you were to uh, sort of give one or two bits of advice, whether it's for academics, uh, you know, professionals mm -hmm. or you know, graduate students or undergraduate students, besides the calendar, you've already given the calendar advice, <laughs> which I think is, it's, it's great. I, I have a hard time sticking, I, I forget to put things on my calendar, but I do totally appreciate the value of, you know, that, that, that organization. Um, you know, what would you say to someone or uh, let's say a, a graduate student, so, I don't know what to do. How am I going to make this? What is your best advice? My best advice is to do, um, to realize that you are actually making it through, right? That it, it, you know the world hasn't stopped and the world has not dropped you, and um, you know you're actually making it through. You're not supposed to have all the answers right now. Um, I had this conversation with some of my young faculty. They're like, you know, we don't know what to tell students. I'm like, well, just tell them you don't have all the answers. This is the first time that you go through a situation like this, and we're all learning together. So, um, you know, I think we we get a lot of pressure, um, especially those people like us who have kids, you know, we're supposed to be managing their learning and we're supposed to be keeping them on track and we're supposed to be worrying about their mental health and our own work and our own homes and where are going to get food and are there going to be needs for, you know, all of those things are, are a lot of stress. And I think we're all doing the best we can. And um, I think that just kind of taking that step back and looking at what you've done, what you've accomplished and what you have to do and 
figuring out what is really important and what sorts of things can be placed in the back burner um, is what we all need to be doing right now in order to make it through. Um, acknowledge the fact that this is going to impact us all to a certain extent in a negative manner. I think that, um, you know, the more preliminary research that I see on how this is impacting, especially young women um, in academia, um, we're going to see an impact that is going to be carried over for years. Yeah. Um, but it is something that we need to acknowledge and it is something that we're going to have to figure out. So we don't have the answers right now and no one is expected to have the answers right now. Nothing that putting pressure on yourself to have the answers right now is something that may not be conducive to you successfully adjusting right. and adapting. And yes, keep a calendar. That's important. <laughs> uh, <laughs> work should be in your calendar. You should be in your calendar. Um, you know, taking that time off to take a little walk in the afternoon or to do a little bit of exercise. I think all of that Absolutely. is really, really important um, because when you become really stressed out, sometimes you lose that sense of regularity. And we are regular people. We are, we've been trained to be regular since we were little children. Right. Um, and all of a sudden now we have these open schedules that um, are really difficult to manage. So having some sense of normalcy, I think, is the most important thing for us to actually get to a place where we can feel like it's normal. Right. Having that calendars. <laughs> your, your own normalcy is normal, right? You're, you know, creating your own normalcy yeah. will make it better for yourself. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk. You mentioned mm -hmm. uh, some of your STEM research. Um, and I, I think this is a really important and, you know, also fascinating area. So um, some of the things that you are involved in here is um, broadening participation in, in STEM careers. Mm -hmm. so your programs, I mean, you're, you're funded by the National Science Foundation, just amazing amount of money, uh, which tells us that this is very important research. Um, and it has a broader goal of participating in the STEM career. So science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, uh, you also investigate the the impact of STEM and um, on student interventions and on their motivations and also improved outcomes in STEM fields. One of the other areas that I think is really important uh, that you focus on is directing some of these programs specifically um, for success in women of color. So, um, I mean, congratulations. And <laughs> it sounds like a lot, a lot of important research, a lot of work, but very important research. Um, so, it looks like I mean, you're involved in six different programs that are funded by the National Science Foundation. Um, what do you think is... Um, or what can you tell us about these STEM programs? You know, I guess without going into every, you know each one of those, um, how are you involved in this research and, and STEM careers and so forth? So, so I think it's important to first talk about why this is relevant and why you know you say oh you have all this you know funding from the National Science Foundation. Why are they interested in mm -hmm. this? And um, the reason behind everything we do is the fact that we rely on technology so much right now. I mean, more people own mobile phones than toothbrushes right now. That is how important technology has become. I did not know that. Daily living. <laughs> yes, yes. <you> know. <laughs> uh, so, um, 
So, um, you know, if you, if you think about children, you give a child, a baby, a photograph right now, and they try to, you know, increase the size of the image because they've been used to, you know, interactive screens. Um, however, when we look at achievement in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics in STEM, um, the United States is lagging behind all the countries in the Pacific Rim, most countries in Europe, and a lot of countries in Latin America. And um, what that means is that we have a lot of potential talent that can develop those technologies that are actually not being tapped and that is being lost and they are not going into developing, maintaining and researching that technology that seems to be important for daily living right now. And um, technology is, it's a funny thing because not only do we need to develop it for our daily living, but also technology jobs tend to favor upward mobility when it comes to um, economics. So children that have an inclination to pursue scientific careers and persist in those scientific careers overall tend to do better um, from an economic perspective than children that are interested in science and want to pursue a science career but are not encouraged and eventually drop out of science. So there are many reasons for us to be interested in bringing science to children and supporting children throughout the development in grade school and college and post-baccalaureate careers um, that involve science. Um, a lot of what we do is focused in the South. Um, you mentioned that I was on faculty in Alabama for many years, and that's when I started getting involved uh, with a lot of this research. But we also have um, some of the poorest counties in the country are located in what we know as the Black Belt of the Southeast. And um, we are particularly focusing on Alabama, which has some counties that are extremely, extremely underprivileged. Most of them have minority individuals as the primary population and um, school achievement is incredibly low. Um, however, we go there and most of the kids are extremely curious about science and about how science is used. They just have never had the opportunity to really develop in that regard. So a lot of what we do is bring opportunity. We are not going to be able to make a child that does not like science, like science, but we may be able to have them understand that science is important. Um, so we may be able to make them consumers of science. I think we were talking about the pandemic. That's a great example of how literacy in science can inform the decisions that you make to protect yourself and others. Um, but if you've never been exposed to scientific terms, if you have never seen science as something that can be friendly and achievable and understandable, um, you may actually dismiss that scientific information. Um, and a lot of these kids, you know, they don't have the opportunity, not because they don't want to have the opportunity, but because opportunities are not available. Um, you know, we put our kids in summer camp, but we pay for them to go to summer camp. What happens if your family is well below poverty level? Um, you cannot pay to attend those opportunities that other children have. So what if someone like me and my colleagues bring that opportunity to you and to your child and um, we can offer them exploration in science? Um, you know, a lot of it is just basically understand what science is. Um, a lot of the kids, if you ask them what a scientist does, they say, oh, you know, they work at NASA. 
you know, they don't understand a scientist develop a cell phone that they use on a daily basis or that um, this little testing strip that their grandma uses for diabetes is something their biologists developed at some point. Um, So just to give them that literacy in science has become extremely important. Um, So we focus on children in middle school and in high school, and we provide them with those opportunities. Um, As you mentioned, we're very interested in bringing um, girls of color into science and very specific in very specifically into computer science, um, black women were one of the main drivers of the revolution of computing in this country at the beginning of the 20th century. And then somehow that fizzled out and Mm. they uh, make a very, very small proportion of the workforce in computing. And by computing, we don't mean just being able to use a word processor just to understand how computers work and how computers can be applied in different aspects. So, Um, We have started last year with a program that specifically targets um, young women of color and tries to get them interested in computer science and computing. Um, But we decided, you know, we need to extend this. So we're interested in supporting college students as they continue in that interest in science. So, um, you know, for us, a student that gets a two-year degree in a technological field is just as valuable as a student that gets a four-year degree or a PhD in a technology field. So um, we're supporting students at at all levels. And because we think that the role models that students get are so important, we're also working on teacher development and academician development at the collegiate level. So we have young faculty of color and we're trying to encourage them to remain um, involved in the academia and to uh, progress in academia and to be there as role models for new generations of students um, to come. So um, it's a huge goal. Uh, We've been very fortunate to have the support of the National Science Foundation. And um, we think that the work that they're doing is um, it's funded because it is important, because it is something that diversify science and diversity is important because it brings different perspectives and it um, brings different life experiences and it brings different goals uh, for the common goal which is to to improve our our living situation yeah uh, just uh, you know anecdotally i mean we see a lot of um you know pushing of stem programs and uh, summer activities for you know younger people and it just occurred to me in thinking about what you're saying it's almost like well then they get to college and then you know the the pushing and the importance that we you know um place and in practice on continuing to encourage them you know it might not be the same it's almost like okay well you must like science and or technology engineering or math and you're on your way but what you're talking Mm -hmm. about is that continued support and um you know from academic academia and um, you know possibly other programs other industries that might you know appreciate that value and just continuing to push it and and i think it's just It's just about science literacy, too. So, um, you know, when we started developing a lot of these things, what we wanted to do is turn children into scientists. And um, some children do not have an interest in becoming a scientist. However, they have an interest in understanding science. So um, I'm thinking about a particular student, and she wants to be an artist, and she wants to be a painter. And, you know, after going through a STEM-focused program, she will like to use computers in order to you know, develop her art, or she's interested on how to use 
you know, filters in computers in order to make her photographs look better. Um, and she's interested in the science behind developing some of the things that she will like to use. Right. So we may not have turned her into a scientist, but we have turned her into an informed consumer of science. Right. Um, and someone that understands that science has a place in their life. And um, you know, that may be a realistic goal that we have with, with kids. We cannot just turn everybody into an engineer, right? right. But we can turn every child into someone who's willing to receive scientific information and understand that information and integrate it into their, their own lives. Right. And that whether you are literate or you don't think about it, science, I mean, the scientific, scientific contribution, it's all around us. It's, you know, what you're using, your phones, the microphone, the computer, uh, you know, the tree. I mean, it's, it's all there. It's just appreciating the value of science. I, yeah. I just... I think it's really an amazing program, uh, a, s- a set of programs that you're that you're involved in. Do you? Um, I mean, I know that you know there are the expectations of you know students or individuals just appreciating science as one of your as one of your expectations. But do you think that any one program, you know, do you have more? Um, do you think one program has more promise than another, or is there one particular area where you already seeing you know some of the impact that you're that you're talking about well since they are all ongoing work uh, you know i think all of them are they're living programs you know we make adjustments we realize what has worked and what hasn't worked um we have a, a program with high schoolers that is coming to an end um we were supposed to to an end this summer but we are postponing until next summer for for you know due to the pandemic. But um, I think that is showing a lot of promise in the sense that um, we get a lot of enjoyment of science from the kids. Um, so they go back to school. They're very proud of the fact that they have participated in um, a program that is hands on, and they were able to create. They were able to use their own questions to drive their learning. Um, their enjoyment of math and science in school goes significantly up. Um, we've had several of them change gears in what they want to do and actually have incorporated a scientific perspective into their long-term goals. Um, we've had quite a few that were able to present the work that they did as part of our program and um, have moved on to college with fellowships, which is something that was you know, outside their their um, scope when they started. So um, I think it does make an impact. Um, it's a my, my my pain comes when it's. I know it's a limited number of students that we can touch, but um, you know, we view it as a network. Those students will touch other students, and those other students will touch other students, and you know, we view it as a network that can grow. Um, so we do see promise in the interventions that we have. Um, our limitation is, of course, how to support the programs after the grant ends. And um, that's what we have had to become very creative, um, try to get some local industry and some local uh, community organizations involved. Um, we need to get the schools involved. We need to get buying from the teachers, from the principals. Um, but I think that when they see the enjoyment of um, science on the part of the kids, they become more excited about it. And we've had a very good response from the community on this. Um, we need to get parents involved when we're dealing with kids. You need to get parents involved. That's why it is so difficult to make the transition to college because when you're in college, parents become less important. And, um, you know, the students have to be self-motivated and 
um, we need to create a community that will support them. And they don't necessarily have that once they get into college. So part of our goal is to maintain that community ideal um, as students progress through their education. So are you saying that science can be contagious? <laughs> science can be contagious. We hope it is contagious, at least. That'll at be least for a cute teacher. Yeah, science is going to, oh, you know what? that may be the, the slogan for our next camp um but i think that it it can be i mean when when you have a student that um i'm thinking of a particular student whose you know goal was to maybe at some point get a job at the gas station in his town and then you know that will pay the bills and He's now talking about he wants to be an underwater welder and he's learning a lot about the chemistry of welding. And, you know, he talks to his friends about this and now three of them want to go to welding school. I mean, just think about how cool that is, um, you know, and or you have the one that, you know, just comes and says, well, I didn't know engineers did this. Right. And, you know, what else do engineers do? And you can put them in contact with an engineer and they just, this whole world opens and then they go home and they tell their little siblings, you know, this is what an engineer does. You know what engineers do? They make bridges and, um, you know, they make cars. And, um, you know, this becomes exciting. Um, all of a sudden, the main thing about it, getting an interest and involvement in science, I think is to link it to people's lives. And it is not something that scientists do in a lab. Um, which is unfortunately what we see right now with the pandemic. You know, people, you're talking about development of vaccines. And people are like, oh, you know, no, that's something that happens in a lab. I have no idea what that's about. Just tell me the results. And, you know, why is a vaccine not done yet? And it's understanding that process of science. Right. You know, science is a lot about testing and trial and error and learning from your errors and starting again. And um, that is a process that a lot of people are not familiar with. But when you put a kid in, you know, develop a water filter, and they're like, oh my God, you know, water filters, those you buy at the grocery store. Well, you know, let's just get some rocks. Let's see what happened. Let's get some sand. Let's see what happened. Well, you know, I broke it. I need to start again. And they realize that resetting and starting again is not a failure. It's just something that takes you one step further in what they're doing. Um, you know, those kids, if you tell them there were 10 vaccines that were being developed and eight of them failed, you know, their question is not, oh, you know, why did they fail? Scientists are not doing their job. Their question is, what did they learn from the failure? So that is the type of literacy that we would like our kids to have. Right. That sounds wonderful. Please keep doing that research. <laughs> okay, we're, we're going to switch gears again and um, talk a little bit about your research outside of STEM, um, the STEM career fields. And um, so uh, some of the research that you focus on is on le learning and memory across humans and non-humans. And one specific area in particular that you examine is fear, right? And how it develops and how it's reduced. In some of your fear models, you use, well, I said humans and non-humans, some you use rodents. And while I think, you know, humans and learning and understanding that the, the, all the processes involved, super interesting, but mollusks and learning, <laughs> I, I think that's like a whole nother level of, of super, right? Uh, um, so, I mean, maybe it's common knowledge to others, but I don't think I'm like the common person anyway, but there are more than 80,000 species of mollusks in existence. And that's probably just what we know, right? What, or I don't, maybe it is an estimate. I don't know. Um, but 
I mean, who knows this? I mean, I, you know, and they possess an extremely simple nervous system, but they appear to exhibit many of the same learning phenomena as vertebrates. So, okay, tell me about mollusks and learning and how, you know, they're similar or what are some examples of uh, similar learning phenomena that you've seen in, in vertebrates? So, the, the getting to mollusks was a very... Uh, interesting um, process for me. We, when I lived in the South, we decided to have a garden, a vegetable garden. And, um, you know, you have to fight against the birds and the raccoons and the squirrels and the slugs. And one of the ways in which you deal with slugs is you can bury a can of beer and they will go, you know, they are attracted by the yeast and the hops of the beer and they fall into the can of beer and they drown. So it's a very common organic way to control pests. And my son must have been about three years old. And I took the can of beer out one night and I forgot to put it the next day. And then we went to you know, see the tomato plants because we went every day. And there's the hole full of slugs and there was no beer in there. And, you know, my, you know, I think he must have been like three years old. He just looks at me and goes like, see, they knew where it was. And I'm thinking like, oh, they knew where it was. So maybe they remembered where it was. And, you know, for a moment I took pause and I'm like, well, of course they remember where it was. I mean, Eric Kindell earned a Nobel Prize in physiology for studying the C's log and how memory is getting coded at the cellular level in a mollusk. So I became very interested in what do we know about land mollusks? And, um, you know, we, I was, I had three tomato plants that never made it to full tomatoes, but in my mind, I was going to be doing all this organic gardening and I'm like, you know, what if the, the pests are one step ahead of us and, you know, they can acquire and retain information for a significant amount of time. So I brought this up in a lab meeting and all my students laughed and I'm like, no, 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 seriously, guys, we're going to do this. <laughs> and um, we started reading a lot about the nervous system of mollusks and why Kindell had selected Appalachia for his studies and Mollusks have a very simple nervous system. They separate it from the evolutionary line that leads to humans you know, hundreds and thousands and millions of years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so they are about as different from us as they can be. And um, when, when we look at that separation and we look at the nervous system, nerve cells are about the same. And all the neurotransmitters that they use are about the same as the ones that we use, which is already telling us something about the biological basis of learning and memory. And um, when you look at all the studies that Kendall did, the Aplicia reacted in a very similar way to how we react. The only reason for selecting Aplicia is their nervous system is so simple. They only have a few thousand neurons. They are very large and they're organized in a very specific way. So you can map them you know, by name, every single one of the neurons in the nervous system of Aplicia has been mapped. Oh my gosh. So, you know, we didn't have the capacity of having tanks, but we did have an incredible number of slugs in my poor diseased tomato plants. So <laughs> I decided that we were going to attempt this. And um, there's a lot of movement towards doing research with invertebrates. And um, the main reason for that is... You know, despite the fact that people think that um, animal researchers were all eager to take as many animals as we can and do nasty things to them, and you talk about fear, what are you doing to them? You know, we are guided by ethical principles. We want to reduce the number of animals we use. We want to refine 
find the procedures that we use to minimize discomfort, and we want to replace with other models if we can. So invertebrates have become a very attractive um, area of research, and um, or this subject of research. So we investigated very well what slugs can and cannot do. Um, you know, they are mostly blind. Uh, when you're a slug and you leave underground or under a leaf, you don't really need eyes that right. see very well. So they have light dark detectors. They never evolved an auditory system. Um, they have good tactile system, but most of their nervous system is devoted to olfaction. Okay. So when you're a slug, all that you really want to do is you want to find food and you want to find a mate. And that's about as much as you do. Um, so we decided to test the olfactory memory of slugs and how they could use that olfactory memory to avoid danger in their environment. Again, thinking about, well, you know, people say put salt around your garden, you know, how can you protect plants? And what we found is that they can learn the meaning of a stimulus. So for example, if we gave them a piece of cucumber um they learned that cucumber was something that was salty and they avoid salt because they dehydrate very quickly under salty conditions so they learn quickly to avoid that food that was uh, not good for them in the past right. and um they were able to remember that information um we expected them to remember it for a few hours they were able to remember it for 21 days um and you know by 21 days their life cycle is almost ending so that's as far as we were, were able to go okay. um, but they were also able to remember multiple meanings for a particular cue so for example um cucumber could have led to nutrition at one point and then it led to um experiencing pain in another um time you know pain i'm referring to salt which they have um, and they were able to keep track of what the current meaning of that information was, which is a very complex cognitive process if you think about it, especially right. for an organism that lacks a brain. So for us, the important thing about this is we always talk about these complex brain structures when we right. talk about learning and memory, but we have an entirely different phylum of animals that never developed a brain and um, are still able to do a lot of those same things. So it raises a lot of interesting questions on the cellular and biological basis of memory that are, in, in my opinion, very worthwhile of researching. Oh, yeah. And if you think about it, if they've been around, you know, much longer than we have, I mean, part of their success is because they have, you know, put everything into that olfaction and, you know, learning, right? And avoiding uh, things that kill them, right? Um, and they're underground, so that's pretty, it's probably safer than on top of ground. <laughs> yeah, well, um, as long as it's, there's so many of them, you know, they, and they're, when we're trying to do research with a new species, we need to understand very well what our ecological niche is. So what are the right. environmental pressures that they face and what are the things that will lead to survival? Because those are the things that we're tuned to learning. Right. Um, we're not going to learn about things that are irrelevant to us. I mean, right. you may never learn to discriminate ultrasound because that is not something that you will ever use and you don't have the capacity to use it. Right. Um, but anything that affects your survival there seems to be a mechanism to help you take information from the environment and adjust your behavior to increase your chances of making it to the next day. So um, that's kind of what we what we use in order to, to understand how these organisms um, learn and remember things. 
I'm, I'm hoping that people will view mollusks differently or slugs. <laughs> I mean, uh, they're just amazing. They're not the prettiest, you know. We, no, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they don't seem all that different. Like when you describe them as, you know, just looking for food and meats, that sounds very similar to humans. <laughs> At least from male, male perspective. <laughs> it's, it's part of what we do, right? Um, that is really amazing. Um, so what other types of um, non-human um, species do you look at? Well, we're now um, trying to get off the ground a project with beetles. Uh, we're interested okay. in um, beetles for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them is they do go through metamorphosis, which makes them very interesting um, subjects of research. And um, so we are only in the beginning stages, we're starting to understand what they can and cannot do in order to figure out what sorts of things we can ask from them. Okay. Um, and of course, my training and a lot of what we do involves rodents. Um, we use mice and we use rats. They are um, great models for human behavior. Um, their nervous system is not that different from ours. Um, yeah, ours has different levels of allocation to different brain structures, but we have very similar brain structures and very similar right. organization. And um, with rodents, we can do certain things that we cannot do with humans because of the lifespan of humans. So we want to look at intergenerational things. In 21 days, we have a whole new generation of rats um, that we can study. So it allows us to look at the impact of, for example, um, chemical insults during pregnancy and what sort of effects they have on the offspring um, throughout their lifetime. And that lifetime is something that can be observed within my lifetime. And um, there are some things that for ethical reasons, we're not going to be able to do with, with human subjects that we um, can do with, with rodents. And um, they can provide a lot of information that we will then have otherwise. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, really important. Um, I mean, in understanding, so like pregnancy, for example, you know, things to do and not do in terms of ingestion. So, alcohol is one, um, you know, one um, chemical uh, that might have adverse effects to the embryo, um, and that might have long-lasting effects, right? Um, you know, after after birth, and so. Um, the um so you know yeah that's i mean yeah we of course there are ethical <laughs> reasons for why we can't you know do this in humans um but it's how important uh you know some of this research is and you know i mean i guess it's an whole point um the um you know using the animal models to better understand uh these kinds of things but it does tell us a lot about you know the health our health right Yes, um, they they can tell us a lot about um, things that we anecdotically may think work or do not work. Um, you know, and that is, you know, again, everything kind of reverts right now to the current pandemic. Um, you know, why don't we use, we've seen some medications that have been proposed as potential treatments and then, you know, all scientists say, you know, we need to hold back, we need to do the studies. Well, that's kind of what we do in the lab. We, we bring those things and we test them not only for safety, but also for actual outcomes. Um, some treatments seem to be very promising. And then once you assess them, you realize that they have long-term consequences that were intended. So um, 
models, especially for animals that have a very short lifespan, they allow us to see the impact of some of those treatments and some of the things that may come from them. Um, a great example of that is um, chemotherapeuticals. You know, chemo, of course, we want to use it for cancer, but chemo can also affect the way in which we think and the way in which the brain works. Right. And a lot of people that have gone through extensive chemo are going to have cognitive deficits that last for a lifetime. So we cannot understand that with people because of the lifespan involved. And, you know, we're trying to push a new drug and then what do we do? Do we hold it back? Well, yeah. if we can test it with animals and we can understand it with animals before we can try to understand it in humans, um, there's a whole bunch of safety um, procedures that can be applied if we understand how it works in a different organism. Yeah. So the, I mean, they have really important implications. A lot of the research that you're, that you do on, on the non-human models. Absolutely. Yeah. I would like to think that it's very important. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, for sure, you know, psychologically, medically, I mean, it's, um, yeah, yes, I agree. Yes, it is. Yeah. You should feel it's important. (laughs) It is important. (laughs) Um, Well, Martha Dr. Escobar, thank you so much for being here today on the Darwinian Diva podcast. I know that things are, you know, life isn't quite the same as it was a couple of months ago, but we do appreciate you, you know, coming on and taking the time to talk about uh, this really important research that you're doing uh, with your colleagues and your and your researchers. Um, so, uh, if someone wanted to get in contact with you, if you know, we've got uh, eager scientists. <laughs> Whether they're undergraduate, high school students, whatever age, or parents, you know, that might be interested in, in what you're doing and, um, you know, how they can be an active participant in their, their child's scientific literacy and so forth. How would you like people to contact you? The easiest way, I'm sorry, my dog has decided <laughs> that the world is attacking him right now. The joys of working from home, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> the easiest way to uh, contact me is through my website, my lab's website, which is... Um, www.escobardlab.com and um, or directly through my work email uh, Martha Escobar at oakland.edu Okay, and we'll, we'll also post that information for uh, listeners if that's okay with you. Again, thank you so much. Yes, and uh, please, we hope that you come back on and uh, you know at another point and tell us more about those mollusks. <laughs> And and of course, the the other STEM research that you're doing. So thank you again, Martha. No, thank you so much for having me, Viviana. A big thank you to you guys for listening today. Please continue to send in your questions and comments. We really like receiving them. And remember, be curious, stay engaged, and join us next time on the Darwinian Diva podcast.